Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 52, verse 13, and we will read through Psalm 53. So Psalm 52, verse 13, and we will read through Psalm 53. When we think of the cross... We think of a point in time, and it was a point in time. We look back upon that point of time. It was a historical moment that took place. It was an event, and it was witnessed by numerous people. It was carried out by real people in a real place, in a specific point in history. You can go and visit the very place where it took place even today. And so we are right to reflect on that most important moment of human history where we see simultaneously the wrath and the love of God poured out in the greatest manifestation of God's wrath and God's love in all of human history. Yet this evening... Uh, Scripture is going to pull back the veil of time. It's going to draw the curtains of history to let the light of eternity shine before us. Because Scripture not only speaks of the moment when it took place in history, but we also see that Scripture shows us the very cross was part of the eternal plan of God. And we see that so clearly in Isaiah. Let us hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations... Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 has rightly been called the gospel of the Old Testament. It solely clearly depicts the life of Christ, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Savior, written hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening, we're going to focus in on verse 10 and specifically on one phrase of verse 10. As we read this psalm, we see the tragedy of the cross that's shocking to us, but yet what we see in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush the Son upon the cross. It was the will of the Lord for the Son to live a perfect life and suffer in place of His people. And so this evening, as we consider that will of the Lord, I want to think about four things in terms of the will of God that comes out in the text, and that is first, the nature of God's will, the extent of God's will, the execution of God's will, and the result of God's will. And so we begin by looking at the nature of God's will. And the first thing we have to know about the nature of God's will is God's will is not like ours. Our will changes. Our will is susceptible to our emotions and to events that are taking place around us. Our will is subject to us aging. Our will is subject and dependent to all the things that surround us in our human existence. God's will is not subject to anything. His will is eternal. His will is immutable. It is His will that can never change. And His will is according to to his good pleasure, to his delight. He is pleased as God to do what God wants, and it's an eternal will. We can't put a time stamp on God's will. We can't comprehend God's will. When God decided to send the Son, it is an eternal choice, meaning there was no starting point that it began. God did not simply look down into the future and see that He needed to send His Son to be a Savior, but rather, in eternity, He decided to send His Son. And words fell us to say He decided. 
indicates an, a time stamp on something. It's an eternal choice of an eternal plan of God, the will to crush the Son, the eternal, immutable will of God. We have to understand something about the will of God that is also different than our will, is God's will is successful. God's will will happen. God's will cannot be affected. We see so clearly in Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's eternal will, God's immutable will, God's independent will, God's free will, this is a successful will. It will be accomplished as God has planned. When we look at the cross, what we have to recognize is what it tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the immutable, eternal will of the Lord to crush him. Let that sink in. The cross was not an accident. It was not a response to human evil. It was not simply God reacting to the unexpected. It was not God's plan B. But it was part of an eternal plan to rescue the fallen children of Adam. You think of Isaiah 42... We see a glimpse, if we can, into eternity, this plan spoken of. Again, words fell us. But we see what has been known as the covenant of redemption. That is God's eternal plan, the covenant within God to rescue a people. You see this in Isaiah 42, in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I just want you to notice something there. And it's this, it's the personal pronoun, my, and it's the word servant, and it's the word spirit. All persons of the Godhead are mentioned in sending the Son, the suffering servant, and all persons of the Godhead were responsible for sending the Son. We cannot separate the persons of the Trinity in such a way that they were acting independently. But the will of the Lord to crush Him was a Trinitarian plan. It goes on to say, He will not cry out loud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That is to peel back the curtains of time and to look into eternity and read in words the pact of God, the covenant of redemption to save a people 
for his name. We look at it in time in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, and I'm going to read several verses. Don't worry about flipping there unless you want to, but I'm not going to wait for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. That's Paul looking back upon the historical reality of the Father sending the Son. It says, He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all. Then you see also that the Son comes of His own volition. The Son comes voluntarily. In fact, in Isaiah 53, it says, He makes Himself an offering for guilt. In other words, the Son voluntarily came. The Father doesn't send a reluctant Son. The Father doesn't send a Son who says, I don't want to come. But the Son comes. And we read of this in John chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And throughout the Gospel of John, over and over and over again, you see that the Son is obedient to the will of the Father. Our Savior was not a reluctant substitute, but He was a willing and desired as part of the very plan of God. And you see that this all took place in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're looking at time now. We see this in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Exactly what Isaiah 42 said is that he would be empowered by the spirit to accomplish the work that God had given him. What I want you to see in this will and the nature of God's will, the will of God is unified among the persons of God. Our God is one. Our God is triune. And so the eternal God and the eternal will of God determined the cross. But to what extent? What is the extent of God's will? And to what extent did this will unfold? Well, I want you just to see this first from a, from a big picture, and then we're going to narrow down and see how great and how detailed God's will truly is, leaving nothing up to chance. By the way, chance is nothing more than pagan idolatry. There's no such thing. God's word does not allow it. So what was this plan? Here's the big picture of it. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up, that is speaking of the crucifixion, it was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This clearly tells us that the crucifixion was not an accident. 
But it was according to God's definite plan. And then the text goes on to say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, God's plan involved wicked, sinful people using their sinful, wicked desires to accomplish His will. And let me just tell you, God's will is accomplished not only through the righteous, but the unrighteous alike. God's will prevails in all things. So the general picture, the things that we know, His will was for the Son to live a human life. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. Not only does this say that the Son will grow as a normal person grows, but His very looks and the way that He appeared are also determined by God. That when you saw Him, you would not think anything different of Him, but God's will determined what He would look at, look like when we see Him. Before the incarnation and His birth and entrance into time and space as a man, it was an eternal plan of our triune God. Christ's life lived was not just a random picking of dates. It was not just some random thing that he happened to be born in Bethlehem when he was. His interactions with people were determined in eternity. Think about that. There was not one chance interaction that the Lord Jesus Christ had because the extent of the will of God was to the point of every single interaction that Jesus ever had was determined by the will of God. Isaiah 53, verse 3, tells us that. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. How would God's word know that some 800 years before it happened? Because it was God's will that that would be what happened. Let me take a step back even further and give you even a bigger picture of the unfolding of Scripture itself. You begin with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam. And then He creates Eve. They sin. God promises in the curse, in speaking to the serpent, that he will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And we then see the unfolding of that plan. You see a movement of nations. How do you see that in the Tower of Babel? Where all the nations and the tongues were divided, and then all of a sudden you have interactions with nations that never happened before. You see the choosing of a line in Abraham, that God chooses Abraham according to his will, not because of anything foreseen in Abraham. Then you see that through Abraham there comes the tribe of Judah, and then from the tribe of Judah, God chooses David, the least to be expected to be the one to be chosen. And then you see Mary that is chosen to carry in her womb the Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, 
In order for that to happen and to unfold, how many moving parts had to be exactly perfect to get to Bethlehem and have a virgin named Mary be pregnant? How did the the nations and the people survive from the time of Adam until now? Was it human ingenuity? Was it just nature? No. The Bible does not allow that. It was God's sovereign goodness in sending rain in due season and holding it back to move people to specific places at specific points of time so that the world would be formed exactly as it was when Christ would come into the world. In fact, Paul even says this when he's in Athens. He specifically says these things in Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What's the extent of God's will? Let me tell you the extent of God's will. It was God's will that you're sitting there right now. That's the extent of God's will. It doesn't leave any stone unturned. And as people groups moved throughout the Bible and throughout human history to come to this specific point of time, you see God's sovereign will in providing technological advancement and support to support human growth and civilizations to grow. Read Genesis chapter 4 where the line of Cain begins to invent things in agriculture and in music and in metal so that civilization can be supported according to God's sovereign plan. Amazing, the ingenuity that took place in the building of the ark is the very ingenuity that allowed civilization to flourish. Where did that come from? That came from God's own hand. The building of worlds, world struggles, world wars, empires, so that the Roman Empire would emerge at the exact time and God's people would be in bondage. That happened according to God's plan. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 Verse 7 tells us that it's God's plan that that would take place. We read this. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Most interpreters interpret that as speaking of Rome. In other words, the Roman Empire would be put in place by God. The very hands that would be used to nail Christ to the cross. And it's amazing that when you think about it, that actually the perfection of human torture began with the Persians and then developed into the Romans and the Romans mastered the crucifixion. That was all according to God's determined plan. It was the will of the Lord 
to crush him. There was not one detail left out. We see again in Acts chapter 13 and verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And they, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and they had carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. There was not a detail of the crucifixion that was by chance. There was not a detail of human life that was by chance. You see in Isaiah 53 that there would be an execution that would take place by wicked leaders. In Isaiah 53 verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. The very wicked leaders that we read of in the Gospels, the very wicked leaders that that Paul points at throughout the book of Acts become so clear. But let me tell you and extend it even further than that, and that is this. The very instruments that were used in the crucifixion of Christ were according to God's predetermined will, and they would not have been invented apart from God. Just think about this for a second. How did the working of metal come about? Genesis 4 tells us. But notice what Isaiah 54 says. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fires of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. God not only in His sovereign plan allows for the creation of technology through the blacksmith, but He also creates the one that will wield the sword. In other words, the very nails that were put and placed in Christ's hands, we read in Isaiah, was according to God's own sovereign plan. Octavius Winslow, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Little did they dream as they bound the fatal wound wood upon his shoulder by whose power that tree was made to grow. I love that. And from whom the beings who bore him to death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the cursed wood. Oh, the depth of Jesus' love to sinners. In other words, Jesus created the tree he would die on. Jesus created the nails that would be driven through his hands. Jesus created and sustained the men that would beat him and that would mock him because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. His burial was part of God's plan. Isaiah 53 verse 9 tells us, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
in Luke 23. In verse 32, we read this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. He dies with criminals. And then later on, we read in verse 50 of Luke, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Amarathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. The extent of his will was to determine that he would be buried in a tomb of the rich and that he would be dying with the wicked. Let me ask you this or tell you this, as if the will of the Father was so complete to bring about the crucifixion of his Son in the power of the Spirit, could we doubt for one second his continuing will to bring his Son a second time? You think of the times we live in now and what things look like now. And we wonder, is God still in control? You look at the wickedness that surrounds us and pervades our time, the violence that is embraced and the perversity that is embraced in our culture. If God's will is to such a great extent as we have seen How could we tremble today at wicked leaders knowing that they are actually in the hand of God? How could we be frightened by mere men? Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21 says this, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancients of days came. Who's the ancient of days? And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. That's our promise. That's our reality in Christ. That's the extent of the will of God. But I want us to see the execution of God's will now, which is this, it was to crush. That is to break. The Lord does the crushing. That's what our text says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Lord crushes the son. Now we we think of the physical crushing so often. We see that in Isaiah 52. We read it already. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. That word marred means to be misshapen, to be disfigured to a certain extent that you cannot even recognize Him. That's how marred physically Christ was in the crucifixion. John chapter 19 gives us a glimpse of it. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. Please don't get the images that you see in movies and stuff like that of the flogging. The Scripture actually doesn't focus on those. Focus where Scripture focuses, not where Hollywood does. 
It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Why did they say that to him? They were obviously mocking him because he was marred beyond human semblance. And they're mocking him. How could you be a king? You who is bloody and beaten and pathetic. That's the execution of God's will. It was the will of the Lord. This came from the crushing hand of God. And that just gives us a glimpse of the the physical aspect of it. But I want us to see the depth of the crushing. In Matthew chapter 27, in verse 45, what we read is the depth of this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But what's going on with the darkness? Well, darkness in Scripture, just frankly, is this, is judgment is taking place. So what was the depth of crushing? It was far beyond just the mere physical, but rather we should see it and we ought to see it as judgment was taking place on the cross. And that is what the darkness itself represents. Consider this in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment, of God's wrath that is taking place upon the cross. In that crushing is the crushing judgment of God upon God. Isaiah 51 verse 17 says, Wake yourself up, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Christ drunk the cup down to the dregs. It speaks of wrath, it's speaking of His intense anger, which leads to a perplexing problem for most of us, and that how could the Father be angry with the Son? Here's what we always have to understand is the Father always loved the Son. There was not a moment where the Father was not pleased with the Son. How could He not be pleased with His Son? His Son was obedient in all things. His Son was obediently fulfilling the plan upon the cross. How could He not love the Son? Let me tell you, it would be heresy to say that the Father ceased in loving the Son. It would, divide, it would divide the Trinity. He was pleased with the Son, even in His holy wrath being poured out upon the Son. The Father judged sin. But you think about what the command is to honor thy mother and thy father. What is Jesus doing upon the cross? Honoring His Father. Father was pleased in pouring out his wrath upon his beloved son. He was pleased to crush him. 
and what he crushed. I want you to see and notice this throughout all of Isaiah is this hour. Our, our iniquities, our transgressions. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wombs we are Healed. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Transgressions. It says that is our rebellion. We're told that we were enemies and yet he died for us. Iniquities. Specifically, that is guilt caused by sin. Now, I know we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. But if we weren't sinners, there would be no need for the cross. And we should see in the cross the depth of our sin. For our sin took the full brunt of the wrath of God. The crushing of the Son is the execution of God's will. And finally, we see what the result of God's will is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. That's the result of the will of God. That by his poverty, by his crushing, you might become rich. Isaiah 52, verse 12, or verse 13, excuse me, says this, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Christ, now, exalted. That's the result of him crushing the sun. But I want you to notice what it brings us as it brought us peace, it says. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace, then, in other words, is restored between a holy and just God and a sinful people in the will of the Father to crush the sun. Peace is brought about. That's the result of the will of the Father crushing the Son. We're told this is that with His wounds, we are healed. You think about that for a second. His wounds were the instrument or are the instrument that God uses in bringing healing. And that healing here, here and also in 1 Peter specifically is speaking of the forgiveness of sins. 
But we make a mistake in interpreting that passage in our combating of the error of charismatics that say that we're to get physical healing now. We combat that by saying that's not what that says, but I believe that's exactly what that says, is that we will receive a future resurrected body that is not susceptible to sin and the curse of sin. We will be physically healed. Absolutely. His wounds were the instrumentality of that. His crushing is so that we might be healed. But I want you to notice something else. It says many to make many to be accounted righteous. Was the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ in the Old Testament? Yes. Accounted righteous. To be a justified by whom? Notice what it says in verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's an amazing statement. The righteous one makes many righteous. Notice it also says he shall bear their iniquities, which notes that they're not righteous. It notes that they're sinful. But the righteous one, the perfect one, the holy one, he will make them righteous. How? By imputing his righteousness to them. The doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ in Isaiah 53, verse 11. R.C. Sproul said that is the most crucial doctrine of the Christian church. It's not a righteousness of our own, but it is his righteousness. And I want you to notice this is the result of the will of God. If you are in Christ, it was God's will. It is the result of him crushing the Son and applying the Son's righteousness to you that you may be counted as righteousness. So can good come out of the greatest atrocity in human history? Not only does good come out of it, the only innocent man to ever suffer is the very means by which we receive the greatest good news of salvation, that the righteous one shall make those that are in transgression, those that are wicked, those that are enemies, that he shall call them righteous. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan to send your Son to pay the price for our sin. We thank you for your Holy Spirit in empowering him in his earthly ministry, and that in the power of the Spirit he went to the cross. And we thank you for the resurrection that shows that he was vindicated and that he conquered death. What a great Savior we have. What a merciful Savior we have. This evening, we just desire to praise you for our exalted, risen Savior and his work 
your perfect will, your perfect execution of your plan, and the extent to which you went to bring about a perfect salvation. We praise you that we may be made perfect in your sight because of the righteousness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.